Welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. Our guest today is Jack Cole. You may not have heard of him, but trust me, you've seen his work. Jack is a living legend, best known for the $6 million man title sequence that opens the show. He's also designed sequences for great shows like The Rockford Files, Ellery Queen, Ironside, Bionic Woman, and a ton of others. What's unique about his work is the powerful storytelling that drove his design of these title sequences. It was 1974 when he created the $6 million man sequence. So let's put that into perspective for some of you youngsters. Steve Jobs was 19, and Apple wasn't even a thought until 1976, so personal computers didn't even exist. That didn't stop Jack's creative juices to craft sequences that were rich in story and imagery. So get ready, design geeks. This one's going to be special. Here's our conversation with the legendary Jack Cole. Today on the podcast, we have Jack Cole, original designer for the title sequence of Six Million Dollar Man and a host of other great title sequences from shows in the 70s. Jack, pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for being on the Perception Podcast. Well, it's great to be on with you guys, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, talking through the past uh, right through to the present. Yeah, we are too, and uh, you know, just out of the gates, uh, your title sequence for Six Million Dollar Man is one of my all-time favorites. I'm a huge fan of it ever since I was a kid, and uh, it still very much holds up today, and it's really a timeless piece of design. So I can't wait to, to, to dig in deeper on that. Right. Well, you know, it's uh, it's funny that uh, you never realize something is going to become iconic while you're doing it. Uh, it's sort of, uh, it, it, it kind of seeps into its own time and culture and, uh, uh, and becomes what it is. And I'm shocked almost every time, uh, that, uh, someone recognizes, uh, the work and, uh, uh, you never realize that it's going to touch that much of the culture, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of, uh, having done that kind of work. Yeah, no, it's it's great. So, so I know a little bit about your background because uh, we both grew up in Queens. But um, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up, you know, your education, things like that. Sure. Uh, let's see. I I went to Bayside High School, which rang the bell with you. Yep. Uh, and uh, uh, after Bayside High School, I went to at night the School of Visual Arts. Uh, and uh, took up uh, storyboarding and uh, commercial film production uh, with uh, a couple of very talented uh, teachers, Jack Goodford and um, my other favorite teacher. I don't remember his name. Can you give us just a rough idea of uh, the years this was? Yeah, well, it was like uh, uh, I graduated in, what, 61 and went to School of Arts from 61 to 64. Gotcha. Cool. And um, uh, I went at night, and uh, I reached a point where sort of I became bored with uh, the process of uh, teaching and learning because I've always had uh, an extreme sense of what I wanted to do with my life. And it was always going to be something having to do with film. Uh, And that's even when I was in junior high school. Uh, I started doing portraits in the village, uh, started drawing uh, and getting paid uh, in the village when I was 8 and 10 years old. My father used to bring me down to the village with my easel on uh, weekends, and I'd get... uh, uh, three to five dollars a portrait that I did of uh, passing people. So I always had uh, an instinct towards visualization. But the other thing is that as I got bored with school, uh, I began to develop a, a sense of a philosophy, um, a philosophy about myself. I wanted to be a storyteller. 
uh, I, I, I never thought in terms of special effects or effects work. I always wanted to make films that, uh, that exposed character and told stories. And crazy enough, that philosophy uh, brought me into title creation. Uh, I call it more than design because design for me is more like typeface uh, and that kind of stuff. But uh, title creation, uh, I was one of the first, I think, to actually direct live sequences uh, because I didn't like the the photography of... uh, 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 the, the shows that I was being asked to do work on. Anyway, to jump, I moved with my father, uh, both of us. I bought a Corvette, a yellow Corvette convertible in 1964, uh, a four-speed, uh, fast as hell, and we drove out to the West Coast. I uh, uh, sent out resumes to uh, a bunch of people, and the one person that answered my resume was a guy who graduated from Bayside High School. Wow. And he, and, and he worked for Dick Clark Productions. Okay, yep. So my, my very first job uh, outside of school uh, and outside of part-time work was uh, working for Dick Clark uh, Productions, selling tours, uh, because that was the only place that... Uh, they had any uh, any room for new help, and uh, and uh, uh, I started showing my uh, cartooning uh, to Dick uh, Dick Clark, and uh, he he uh, set up a new show called Shebang. Okay, and that was one of his many rock and roll shows, and uh, I would do cartoons that were like. Uh, name that song. So the cartoons were a hint to what the song would be. And uh, uh, I forgot how they got their winners, but that, that w- that's the first piece of art that I did. I left Dick Clark. And at that time, I don't know if you guys uh, realize it. And if I'm getting, if I'm, if I'm spinning too much of a, of a, of a story away from the work itself, please stop me, and right. uh, I'll well, get back on track. Yeah, no, that's uh, fine. It's fine. I mean, I, I we love the story, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to connect. But uh, so yeah. was that your was that your first real big break? Was the Dick Clark show? It, it wasn't actually even a break. It was my first job. Okay. My my my, my break actually came when uh, I met a girl driving down Sunset Boulevard, and her father worked for a place called National Screen Service. Okay. Uh, National Screen Service was one of the original optical trailer houses uh, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the other place was Pacific Title. Uh, and so I was there for a while, and uh, not doing much of anything, just being an understudy uh, for uh, writing trailers and that kind of stuff, which didn't interest me very much. And uh, uh, a call came out from Universal, which came through uh, uh, National Screen Service, and it was to design the titles for a new show called Ironsides. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have never, I've never done a, a title in my life or created a title or thought of a title. And uh, uh, I was invited out to screen. Uh, I asked uh, uh, the head of National Screen Service to let me have a, uh, 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 a shot at this. Mm-hmm. And they did. And I was invited out to National Screen Service to screen the pilot for the show. And uh, my storytelling uh, things kicked in, and I, I said to myself, okay, I how do I tell the story of a guy who is in a wheelchair and uh, is as tough as nails and, uh, uh, and what happened to him? So I literally uh, thought of, uh, of a harsh black and white uh, and uh, color only coming in later on, and it would show how he was shot and uh, uh, and got uh, confined to a wheelchair and 
blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So uh, we submitted. I had one of my uh, guys at the art department uh, do the, it, the layouts for the uh, concept. And we sent it in, and four days later, uh, got word that uh, I was given the job. I, I, wow. I had been, uh, the thing, and that was my break. Because what happened there is the uh, executive producer of Ironsides was Frank Price, who later on became vice president of television at Universal. Yep. And, uh, uh, Frank was producing Ironsides at Universal. And uh, uh, I told them when we had our first meeting that I needed to shoot the entire thing from scratch. I couldn't use any anything from uh, the show itself because nothing related to what I wanted to do. Right. And, uh, uh, and lo and behold, they agreed. They gave me their stages. Uh, they gave me whatever I needed for props. Uh, it was my first directorial uh, gig that I had ever had, and here I am shooting on the Universal lot, uh, which was pretty crazy. So I, I became very friendly with uh, Raymond Burr, who was a sweet, sweet man, uh, who did everything I wanted, even putting white makeup on his face uh, because we were going to shoot, we were going to turn everything into high contrast uh, and use uh, what is used for titles, for black and white titles, I was going to use it in live action uh, in order to get that stony, uh, iron side, uh, uh, steely look to everything. And when he became shot, everything became red. And so I was called up to the president uh, of Universal, Sid, uh, Sid Scheinberg, mm-hmm. who was uh, president of Universal at the time. He said, well, we can't do this. We can't do this. And I said, well, what is it that you can't do? He said, color is the biggest selling point that we have, and you're doing the first 15 seconds in black and white. And I said, well, listen. While everybody's trying to adjust their set, they're going to be looking at the screen really close. And when it suddenly blasts to red, you're going to get an impact that you never had before. And for some reason, that bullshit paid off. And he said, you know, all right, let's give it a shot. And uh, so I worked everything in 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 life at that moment in time all fell into place and uh, the titles became uh, a big big hit and i became a favorite at universal as an outside uh supplier uh for uh main title design uh after that i did uh the rockford files uh, with James Garner, I shot everything uh, original. I also came up with the idea. I said, "How about uh, uh, since we open up with the trailer, it, uh, it, with this trailer home, how about his answering machine having a different message each week, so that it has a freshness to it, and uh, and we could have humor in it. We could have he didn't pay his bills." blah, 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 we're going to shut off your electricity. And they loved that. Right. So, so that, that helped. Again, what I was doing was looking to tell a story in one minute. Mm-hmm. Tell the story and, and, and give a sense of the character that, uh, that we were depicting for James Garner as Jim Rockford. And uh, uh, I used a still photographer Dan Wolf, who became a favorite and a, a close friend of mine, and we shot everything in stills. And we were going to tell the whole story through uh, through uh, still photomation, and um, and that uh, that also became a gigantic hit. Uh, yeah, I remember. Became, I remember the show. Yeah. Uh, you know, watching it with my dad, and and um, I remember the the answering machine part, which I thought was always. Uh, Fun, you know, people would tune in just to see what uh, what what it would say next. 
So is that, right. So after all those projects, is is that how you connected with uh, Harv Bennett? What was the connection? Well, what happened is uh, the Harv Bennett thing. Frank Price called me in uh, to his office. He said, "I have a project, and uh, one thing is it's complicated as hell, uh, and uh, uh, and we only have a couple of months." Uh, before we're going to air this thing. Uh, I want you to meet the executive producer, uh, Harv Bennett, sit down and talk with him, kick some ideas back and forth, and uh, and see if you guys hit it off. And if so, I'd like you to take on the project. And I said, well, let me, well, let me uh, sit down with Harv. And uh, we sat down, we, we hit it off, we had lunch at the commissary, and uh, I said, look, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to tell uh, the story of uh, how he became bionic. I think that's really uh, the interesting thing, that he's a test pilot. And he said, well, that's really complicated. How are you going to do that in a minute? And I said, well, give me a minute and a half. Let's try something different. Let's go a little longer. Hmm. Uh, uh, and he said, "Well, I could, yeah, okay, we can, we can, we we could swing that." Uh, and I said, "Trust me, I think I know where this thing has to go." So, just and, for Jack, sorry to interrupt, but just for the the audience, you're 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 talking about my all time favorite sequence, the Six Million Dollar Man. I just want to make sure everybody understands the context right. of where you're coming from. Okay, this was the genesis of the Six Million Dollar Man opening title sequence, which has, I guess, become quite iconic uh, uh, for its time. Uh, but so anyway, uh, Harv and I, uh, Harv let me go, and uh, I, I wrote up a script, and uh, I was uh, 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 allowed to shoot, uh, I shot uh, uh, the interior of the uh, uh, of the X-Plane uh, on the Universal lot. Uh, the only thing that wasn't originally shot was the actual crash of the, uh, of the plane itself, which was NASA footage that we got uh, from NASA, which was one of their earlier um, uh, rocket planes that, uh, that had crashed. Who was the uh, uh, test pilot in that sequence that you got from NASA? Uh, you know, I don't know, uh, but he died. I mean, uh, it, the the actual test pilot uh, uh, died in the sequence, and I I never knew because they just it's, sent it's us, unbelievable footage when you watch it. It, it is, and uh, the thing is, is I had to I had to match and overlap uh, uh, Steve's uh, uh, intercom, uh, you know, uh, microphone. Uh, sounds with the uh, uh, the crashing uh, plane and also the cutaways back to him, uh, uh, and so I asked. To, uh, so I set up using an actual oxygen mask uh, that was a, an aviator's oxygen mask. So when he talked through, uh, it would be the squeezed sound uh, that you hear when you hear two-way conversation between a uh, control tower. And uh, uh, and that's all uh, that, that's all uh, uh, his voice. Uh, and, it's incredibly uh, convincing so, the way you match that all in the textures. Yeah, I, I we I, we really worked uh, hard. I, I also uh, I added a lot of uh, 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 blackouts, sound outs, sound pops, and uh, uh, clicks, and and. Uh, uh, just to just to give it that uh, losing, uh, not only losing control of the uh, plane itself, but uh, uh, losing audio. Every all the systems were going down on it. Then I thought to myself, you know, what I'd like to do to keep the attention of my audience is layer this thing. Uh, I'd like to layer it with things that were meaningful in him becoming bionic, and that is control lights, uh, heartbeat, uh, heartbeat uh, simulators, uh, and all of those things I layered, 
at one point I had maybe about six layers of uh, imagery going on simultaneously and all, and all playing so that they read, so that they didn't fight each other. They sort of danced with each other because it was a rhythm. It was, it was really a dance of uh, lights, action, a heartbeat getting faster. Uh, as he was coming into the crash, the heartbeats get uh, Yeah, and it created, it created an incredible richness and an intensity that you were able to just build and escalate throughout the sequence. Can you g- right. give a little more uh, detail and dig in a little more on the technical aspects of how you pulled this all off some 40 sure. years ago without any of the technology that we take for granted today? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, as, you, as you might realize, this was maybe... 10 years before home computers uh, became even a potential reality. Um, And so uh, we had things uh, that we had to create that gave uh, one the sense that this was all being done, all the bionics were being done by computer, they were being designed by computer, uh, 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 everything was being done by something that didn't exist. So to give you an example, with, uh, with the graph look of uh, the man who's turning, the full-bodied man, we bought uh, uh, a visible man, glued it together, the kit that they sold at hobby stores, mm-hmm. sprayed it white, and then took a slide projector and projected a graph image a grid. on uh, a grid and, and, and put a green filter on it and uh, shot, it, shot it still frame uh, uh, a move at a time so that it became uh, a, a three-dimensional animation. Brilliant. I love it. You never would have known. Right, and then the other interesting thing is we came up with the idea of a catalog of parts because we we had to show that this wasn't a one-off, that we were, we were working at a time when uh, they could pull pieces together from uh, parts in uh, a very high-tech laboratory. And so the readouts that we did with uh, the eye, uh, with the uh, uh, with the invisible man, we're all we came up with uh, uh, all kinds of code names and everything else, which strangely enough was pretty close to what things looked like ten years later. Mm-hmm. When uh, uh, so we were kind of ahead of our time uh, uh, in the dark, and then. The operation itself, where we show his bionic leg uh, uh, being attached in the operating room, uh, that was me receiving the leg, and it was the leg of Clint Eastwood from a film called Beguiled, Mm. and it was a fake leg. We cut a big opening into it and uh, uh, put uh, circuit boards right on through it, so that it had uh, a very bionic, futuristic feel. Yeah, that was and, that was actually one of the uh, the images uh, that that really stayed in my head was the prosthetic, um, you know, the, the the legs and the arms and things like that. That's what sold right. me about, especially you know, uh, the idea of um, you know, I'm a youngster watching TV and I see a man being broken in the you know in the beginning, and now they're right. rebuilding him, and and it you know seeing those parts kind of. Uh, coming off an assembly line almost mm-hmm. um, and then rebuilding him was really something when I was at that age it really affected me like wow this is unbelievable like if, if I break my arm when I'm playing soccer I just get a new one <laughs> right right, right. The, other, the other thing the other thing is uh, what I thought about doing in handling his speed uh, his ability after he is uh, rehabilitated uh, I used I used his running in slow motion, and uh, and sandwiched that with faster imagery, speeded up doubly fast 
uh, 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 superimposed together so that what was slow to him was fast to the speed. And those two changes of speed seen, seen together gave the impression that, that he was capable of uh, running uh, uh, 100 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So effective. How about all the layering that you were talking about earlier? How was that all accomplished with the heartbeats and, and the LED uh, lights and, and obviously the, the footage well, underneath? Okay, we shot... At that time, uh, we used uh, uh, optical printers for all of the work that we did. And... Um, uh, I was asking the optical printing department at Universal to do something that was just completely out of the neighborhood of anything they've ever done before. So uh, we shot all of the instrumentation, the lights and all, uh, as separate units. Uh, All of the things that were sandwiched were shot as as separate units. And then... I I said, they didn't know really what to do to begin doing this. And I said, here's, let's try this. And I was a young punk of a kid, you know. I'm talking to these uh, 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 older guys who've been on an optical printer for the last 30 years, uh, doing straight titles and dissolves and things like that. And I'm asking them to do things that they never even heard of. I said, let's sandwich two items together. Then let's take those two items that are sandwiched and run it through again and sandwich it with a third item. Mm -hmm. Then we've got the three items together. Let's do it again. And we we did about, oh, about 200 tests on it. Uh, and there's a thing called wedge tests. I don't know if you're familiar with the term wedge test. Wedge test is uh, coming off the optical printer. They are exposure tests mm-hmm. and filter tests that uh, give you um, uh, different uh, grades to filtration, uh, different grades to exposure mm-hmm. settings and, and stuff like that. So, so did you guys shoot the the elements on black, or how did no, you? No, we shot we shot everything in color. Okay, right. But, it, but uh, the, was it against like a green screen or a black screen? How did you actually? How did you isolate these elements to layer them? We isolated the, the elements by using close up lenses on our uh, uh, on uh, on our film cameras. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and like uh, for the for the heartbeat. Uh, that was uh, um, uh, that that screen was maybe uh, eight inches by uh, twelve inches across. It was an actual heartbeat monitor that we were able to set up, uh, and uh, we literally just got in so close uh, with max, uh, you know, max uh, focus lenses that we were able to go inside the screen size, and so- then I had just the pure, yeah. So sorry to interrupt, but the, so you know when when I first started in the visual effects business, you know we had to do uh, things one layer at a time, and you know if a client or if they wanted to change something, you know, and let's say I had ten layers on it and they wanted to change the color of one specific layer, I had to go back. Is that something also you you had to do? You had to go back and adjust the one and then rerun the other five that were on top. Well, here is the here's the great part of it. You live in an age where everybody has become an expert in computer design, mm-hmm. and so everybody's got their uh, uh, their piece to say. The clients I was dealing with were sh- a certain shirt and tie guys running Universal Studio. They knew nothing about. Uh, uh, what I was going through to achieve an effect. And they either looked at it and said, this is great, or uh, what does that mean? And I'd explain it, and they'd go, oh, okay, great. I never once, after my choices, I never once had to go back and change a thing. Well, you were the expert, so that's why they, they had you do the, uh, the, the work every time. I trusted you. Exactly. I was the person that they were depending on uh, I had already proven myself 
mm-hmm. uh, in a number of past situations, and they really and they trusted me. That's great. And uh, uh, and they trusted me to do things that they didn't understand what I was doing. When you were I mean, fir- when you were first conceptualizing this uh, this sequence, how did you how did you sell it to them? Did you did you board this out uh, you know with pencil and paper? I didn't board it out at all. Okay. It was totally boarded. Uh, I wrote a treatment. Right. Okay, and and the treatment said uh, basically we are going to tell the story of how a NASA test pilot became the bionic man, became the $6 million man. And in that, we're going to show how he crashed uh, through, uh, through, the, uh, through an operation, which... Uh, so it was, it was a, a script without dialogue. It was simply uh, a visual written script without... Any, well, if I were to try to storyboard with the equipment that was available to me there, I would have more questions that I could than I could answer, and this whole thing would go down the tubes. Gotcha. They even had to trust me and believe that what I was saying was going to come out on the screen, or they were going to get somebody else. So you you had uh, alignment in the story you wanted to tell, but as far as what it would end up looking like visually, you probably were figuring that out as you went along. A little bit. Exactly. I was, I, I was, I was, I was, what overrode everything was my philosophy of storytelling. That's what the philosophy was. How I went about telling the story developed a piece at a time. Uh, and uh, 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 luckily, it all came together uh, quite wonderfully in the end. Oh, that's That's great. So, so when you were, you know, writing this treatment, you know, where did you find the inspiration to, for the ideas that, that eventually became the full sequence? Uh, well, the, here's, here's the thing. I believe that every designer, uh, every good designer in his heart of hearts, somewhere in his life develops a philosophy. And that philosophy enters how he designs and how he thinks about things. And this is for an architect, for Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright had a philosophy, and that philosophy became embedded in his work. Every designer, somewhere along the line, develops a philosophy. My philosophy was storytelling. And then secondary was the tools necessary to tell the story. Different than today, uh, today it's so easy with computer and programs to knock things out on the screen and to see a result that one might not ever develop a philosophy that overrides or runs through their entire body of work. And for me, at that time, luckily before any of the other tools were available, I just developed a storytelling philosophy. And that went through all of the things that I've done. It went through my title work. It went through my, uh, 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 my commercials. It went through the movie I made uh, at the Nashville Network. Everything was a philosophy of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And that, o- that overrode everything. Uh, I didn't start out to be a graphic uh, film designer. That was, uh, it was the furthest thing from my mind. And the only person I'd ever seen that did anything graphic was Saul Bass. Mm, uh, sure. Right. And uh, so, uh, and, and, and uh, I met Saul a few times and we talked about philosophy and, uh, uh, and how, the philosophy enters your work and, and, and guides your hand in what you do. So that's what happened uh, for me. And all of my title work and everything, the first thing was, what is the story? Who are the characters? What am I trying to say about them? I'm just curious. Did, what, what, what did Saul Bass say about the $6 million man titles? 
Saul Bass never saw uh, the $6 million man titles because I met Bass when I was at the School of Visual Arts. Oh, okay. And uh, he was a guest speaker there. And uh, he and I kind of hit it off and uh, had coffee afterwards. Uh, and uh, He's one of my big uh, and, design heroes as well. Right. And uh, so we, we basically what we talked about is philosophy, how, how philosophy enters your work, how it uh, uh, describes what you are and what you do. And um, uh, he, he, he never saw my work or I never contacted him. I'm sure uh, to he look did. At work, you know, uh, he did his thing and I went on to do mine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, but uh, uh, that, same, that same philosophy also entered how I handled commercials and I won many awards in my commercial work. And uh, 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 my music videos. I mean, I've I've worked with some of the uh, uh, the best artists: uh, Joe Cocker, Steve Perry, uh, 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 a, a bunch of uh, wonderful uh, artists that uh, I did uh, music videos for. Yeah, you bring up a, a great point with the philosophy and the storytelling, and that's you know it's very um, uh, interesting how. You, that your philosophy also aligns with the philosophy of when Jeremy and I started Perception, um, and especially now, whether we're doing feature film work uh, and title sequences, or even the user interfaces, you know, they they, right. they tell part of the story of the character and bring out the personality. And and with the technology projects, you know, doing a lot of artificial intelligence and things like that, right. you know, there, there has to be some sort of story to it, you know, and some sort of personality so people feel comfortable with the fact that they're using such futuristic technology. And I think that, you know, that dictates a lot of what we do here. So I, I, I love that, you know, um, even back when you were doing your work, something as, as simple as storytelling is still such a great value now um, and even going into the future. Exactly. Listen, if, if, you have your, if you have your philosophy down, the tools come naturally afterwards. Mm-hmm. There are certain people that value the tools first. And what usually turns out is something polished but empty. And uh, should you want something extra in your work, you, you need that philosophy to enter into it, to guide your hand, basically, uh, along the way. And that's always been... Uh, uh, the thing for me that's always been uh, what worked for me. Right. So, just a quick question: How long did the uh, did it take to build the entire six million dollar man sequence? Uh, I did it within the two month period that I was given. Okay. Uh, uh, most of the time was spent in the lab. Uh, afterwards, uh, uh, trying to put the pieces together, getting it right. I shot everything in in five days. So, um, uh, and the same with Planet of the Apes. Uh, I shot that in three days, and uh, 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 and it took uh, about a month and a half, two months uh, to put the visuals together the right way. So, how how did this all evolve into the titles for Bionic Woman, and uh, what did you take from the Six Million Dollar Man and 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 bring well, into here, the Bionic Woman experience? Here is the thing, I. And I'll be perfectly honest with you. I did not want to do the bionic woman. Hmm. Uh, uh, and I, I said uh, to Frank, who again got me up to his office, uh, I said, look, Frank, this is, uh, 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 this is a ripoff of the $6 million man between you and I. Mm -hmm. uh, you're looking to just uh, piggyback. And I, when I approach something, I need to feel original mm -hmm. about it, that I'm reaching for a place that hasn't been reached for before. And I'm not going to get the opportunity to do that uh, with, with the bionic woman. And he said, look, do me the biggest favor you've ever done. Just go into it 
meet with the producer and do the best you can. Do the best. Figure something that you can put your hand on to yeah. say, uh, uh, that's original for me. In the end, I did some black and white things. I did, in the end, I didn't walk away feeling the bionic woman is one of my favorite pieces. I mean, uh, it, uh, it's, a, it's a piece that is of another piece, you know. Uh, and the $6 million man told the story, and I couldn't tell it again with the bionic woman, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's, that's what happened there. But one of the interesting things was with uh, Kolchak, uh, the Night Stalker, uh, if you don't mind uh, 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 turning for a quick sure, second. Yeah. No, go for it. Uh, uh, with, with Kolchak, here's a guy that's meeting up creatures and monsters every week. He's a reporter who searches out horror stories and comes in contact with these creatures. Well, how am I going to tell the story of a guy who's, uh, who's got a creature a week uh, and, and, uh, and, and what's going to be with him? So I, I sat down with Darren McGavin, and I said, what do you do when you go into your set as a reporter? What do you do? He said, I, I toss my hat up on the hook. I sit down and I start typing. Okay, an idea flashes to me. What I'm going to do is rather than try to create or show monster, I'm going to create fear. And I'm going to create fear through the typewriter. The typewriter is going to become a violent thing. And I'm going to change the lighting in the midst of this. I'm going to have him walk into his office whistling whatever tune he whistles, toss his hat. He tossed his hat in our chute and missed the hook. I thought that was great, and we left it in there. He tosses the hat, and it falls into the waste paper basket. And he sits down, and as he sits down, he starts to type, and the light suddenly goes from daylight to night, and we move into the keys of the typewriter so that they become these sharp, fang-like things jutting up at you, uh, uh, hitting the paper. And that became my fear. And that became uh, the key element of Night Stalk. So there was no monsters, just uh, a development of a sense of fear, of something changing, of something behind you, of sensing something. That's great. So, so one of the added elements I, I remember, you know, uh, I feel like it's another layer, uh, was the audio. And I know, you know, in Six Million Dollar Man, Richard Anderson was the voiceover for the open. But what a lot of people don't know is that Harv Bennett did the line... Um, Steve Austin, astronaut, right. a man barely alive. But you also had a, a memorable line there. Why don't you tell us about that? Uh, uh, which not the we can we can rebuild him. I'm no, the, uh, the the she's breaking up. Oh, oh, that's right. Okay, so uh, I wrote that. I actually uh, I wrote that uh, for um, uh, for. Uh, Steve Austin, uh, uh, in the thing she's breaking up. That was this. That was the line that that uh, signaled that that he was losing control of the plane, mm-hmm. and that uh, uh, nothing was was starting to work. So I wrote uh, I wrote a bunch of different lines. Uh, she's breaking up. I can't I uh, can't hold on, uh, and uh, we recorded. We recorded all of that and put that in over uh, uh, the sounds of uh, the plane, uh, the uh, uh, the sounds of it, uh, the the rudders. I mean, there, there must have been uh, with the audio. There must have been about eight layers of different sound over the voices and through the voices for that. So everything in there was layered. Mm-hmm. So did you, while you were working on the, uh, on the sequence itself, were you able to attach 
audio. So as you your work was progressing, you were able to see what it looked like and where you might want to do different sound effects. Is that's sure. When, when, yeah, when I got when I uh, when I got together with my editor, uh, we had uh, we had uh, the the B rolls of uh, the audio uh, tracks, and uh, uh, we were able to make a decision. On uh, and I had uh, a wonderful editor. I cannot remember his name, uh, but uh, uh, I had a, actually uh, I have a, a real funny story to tell you about the editing. It's not a funny story, but it's a story. The first person I chose to edit was the man who did the original montage for uh, uh, the uh, earthquake sequence. In uh, it was a silent film. It was in the 30s, and he was still around. He was about 75, 80 years old. And uh, I spoke to him, and I had a sense that maybe he'd be good for this because this was such a montage of uh, layers going in. And uh, so uh, I let him go for about a week on his own to get... Uh, familiar with the footage and he just couldn't put anything together and uh, unfortunately I had to fire him which broke my heart because uh, his daughter came to me and said uh, "Oh, he considers you uh, the next step in making montages and it's like it broke my heart and I said I know but I have two months I have only uh, about three weeks left that I have to do this and I have to do it and I have to make some hard decisions. So, but he was, he did the original montage and I'm forget, forget about what the movie was, San Francisco. It was the San Francisco fire and earthquake sequence. Uh, and it was very famous in a, uh, either a silent film or not. Anyway, it was me just diverging for a second. But uh, we we chose how we were going to layer our sound in the edit room. And uh, at that time, we were working not with flatbeds. We were working with uh, regular green moviolas. Uh, God, it sounds so far, so long ago. No, I mean, it's, not that, it's not that long ago. I remember when I first uh, started working at RGA... We weren't using them, but I remember them being in, you know, in the in the storage area, the moviolas, and I would stick my my face into the, uh, you know, into the into the kind of the goggles that you would look into and see the uh, the footage. Right. Yeah. Right. It's great yeah, stuff. So, yeah. We so we worked, uh, you know. I mean, at that time, everything was mechanical. Nothing was digital and it wasn't uh, I mean uh, it was even before the uh, 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 chem flatbeds came out uh, they came out shortly after that but um, uh, but anyway so yeah we were able to mark up and uh, put uh, a couple of uh, uh, layers together of sound and then we would a layer two layers to a third layer the same way we did uh, the audio and literally, we built it uh, uh, from the ground up. Very cool. I, I love the uh, the train of thought of, of the way you uh, did things back then and even, even the way you thought of, you know, finding that editor who was a specialist at the montages and knowing that, you know, that's what the, the $6 million man was going to become. So after, right. after $6 million Man and Bionic Woman, you mentioned you, you did a lot of commercial work and, and music videos. Tell us a little bit about that part of your career. Well, okay. Uh, sure. Well, what happened also is um, uh, the editor who, uh, who uh, did, uh, uh, let's see, which, which film was it? The editor who did... Uh, let me think for a second. Oh, who did uh, uh, what's the, the the gangster films? Uh, the big ones with Marlon Brando playing. Uh, oh, the Godfather. Godfather. I mean, uh, he was the editor. Peter Zitter is his name. He edited Godfather One, Godfather Two. 
they put a call out. He was working on a film for Barry Gordy called Mahogany with Diana Ross. Uh, and I don't know if uh, that name rings a bell, uh, Mahogany. Uh, anyway, Diana Ross is playing a model in Rome, uh, and she's the first super black model. Uh, it's her story kind of thing. Uh-huh. And uh, they had a montage sequence that they wanted to do, and they called for reels. Uh, and I sent over my reel with my uh, uh, main titles on it and some of my commercials. And uh, Peter Zinner called me and said, how would you like to do a montage? And I did this five-minute montage with Diana Ross. Uh, Vilma Sigmund, uh, who's a very famous cinematographer, he shot uh, 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 E.T., not E.T., he shot uh, uh, Spielberg's other film. In any case, I'm, I'm like blanking out. Pardon me, guys. No problem. Uh, uh, but uh, anyway, so uh, it w- uh, I had uh, I had uh, Vilmo Zygmunt shoot it for me. It was uh, uh, the review said the montage was the best part of the picture. So because of that montage, it was set to music. Uh, Do you know where you're going to? Which was the song that was written for Mahogany. Uh, Warner Brothers saw it, and the head of a new division. Uh, called uh, Music Videos, called me and said, uh, would you be interested in doing a music video? And I had no idea. He shot Close Encounters, I think, right? Uh, Yeah, uh, Bilbo shot Close Encounters, right. Uh, So, uh, uh, in any case, uh, so I I met uh, with uh, the Warners people, and they had an artist uh, called Al Jarreau. Mm Mm-hmm, yep. Uh, it was a a jazz pop jazz sure yeah and so she said we've got two songs would you be interested in shooting something like you did for Mahogany only with uh, uh, with Al Jarrell and I said well yeah I'll I'll, I'll take a look at that let me listen to the songs so they sent me over the songs and I wound up doing both of those videos and I did them as performance videos, right? Uh, and then I said to myself, wait a second, I'm missing something here. Why show, if you can buy the record, why show the same artist singing the same song? It's like the same thing, only you're looking at someone singing what you were listening to. Why can't I build stories? And go to places that the song never went, but was like a movie, and the song was written for it. So I started to use that philosophy, and the next uh, thing that Warner Brothers called me on was uh, an artist. Uh, he was a young artist for Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, and. Uh, he did a song, and I came up with a movie about a cab driver uh, who's, who has broken up with his girlfriend, and his girlfriend has become a superstar, and one rainy night she gets in the cab, and it's him driving, and what happens between them. Hmm. And uh, it worked beautifully. Uh, I got together with... Uh, a producer named Paul Flattery, who uh, is uh, uh, a major producer in uh, performance and uh, 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 performance shows uh, and uh, like Academy Award type shows and that stuff. So we formed a company and uh, I wound up working. I, I got a call from CBS to work with Steve Perry. Uh, Steve Perry was the lead singer. Uh, for um, okay uh, anyway Steve Perry was coming out with a new album called Street Talk and I did three story oriented videos that had dialogue in them uh, and uh, and the dialogue led into the music and sometimes you would see someone performing a little piece of it and sometimes they would be 
no performance whatsoever in it. Right. It would be the book over. Was it Steve, <laughs> Steve Perry from Journey? Yeah, you're, I'm sorry, Journey. Steve Perry from okay. Journey. No, it sounded yeah. familiar. That's why I, I, that's yeah, what I thought yeah, you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's Steve Perry from Journey. And uh, I did all four of his songs for that album, which went to three million. And I got, uh, they sent me a big uh, platinum platter, uh, uh, framed platinum pre- uh, platter. And then I started getting calls from Nashville because hmm. Nashville liked storytelling. And it was like, uh, it, it just goes to show you how kind of one thing just connects to another. And you're just, you're not in control of it at a certain point. Right. And you you know, and I, I get a call and uh, uh, it's from a, a manager who said, we love your storytelling. We have an artist here. Would you want to do something for him? And uh, I wound up doing it, and it won that year. It won uh, the uh, uh, one of the Nashville big awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, then I got a call. I get a call from Reba McIntyre, and uh, Reba said, "I'll let you do all my videos if you move to Nashville." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, I don't think that's." Enough for me, she said. I guarantee you, you'll work nonstop. Uh, if you, I need someone in Nashville, and she says we have a management company and a lot of artists. Anyway, I so I bought a house, moved to Nashville for three years. Wow! And uh, uh, and did uh, uh, work uh, worked for Dolly Parton, uh, Reba McIntyre, uh, Alan Jackson, all these, and I. To be honest with you, I'm not a crazy fan of country music, mm-hmm. but I like the idea that they wanted me to do stories for them. Right. And which led to the final chapter of that whole Nashville thing is I got contacted by the Nashville Network, and they said, we have an idea. And I said, I'll come in, I'll meet with you. And they said, we want to do one-hour movies to star Nashville artists, but not as singers, as actors. Hmm. And you're the only person that we've looked at in their their music videos that have that touch. Would you be willing to, to take on a project and do the very first one? And I said, sure. I'll, I'll. And so it turned out to be Lori Morgan, who is a sexy very short blonde hair. I don't know if you've ever seen her or heard of her. Um, But in any case, uh, I wrote a script for Lori Morgan, uh, and she was a blue-collar worker, worked for an auto plant, Mm -hmm. and uh, is bringing up a daughter, and uh, goes home to her hometown because her father dies. And I wrote really a lovely script. And uh, uh, and that won the Cable Ace Award that year when they had uh, Cable Ace for the best dramatic hour. Wow! So it it just it it what I'm what I'm saying by all of this is the the storytelling philosophy that was so ingrained in me took me through all of the varying places that I was, uh, from my titles to my commercials, my Bell Telephone won uh, the Golden Lion at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, It it was all storytelling first that led me through each of these adventures. That's that's amazing. I mean, it it goes to show you, you know, the the specialty that you had and also the connection you know i think this the the right story connects with with a lot of different people in different ways and, uh, right. and i think that's what you 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 know you did naturally and i think that's why uh you had so many hits well you know i was really happy with my body of work uh i'm now happy uh hanging loose uh, among friends and uh 
playing around with my computer with whatever new effects are available just for the hell of it, and uh, 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 not having to work anymore. Well, it's it's truly an astonishing career, um, Jack. It's been an honor and a pleasure speaking with you. How can uh, fans get in touch with you? Uh, wh- what's the best place to find you online or on the social yeah. sphere? Well, uh, all of my uh, titles are on YouTube. Right. Uh, by putting in uh, the name of the uh, of the title, I can be reached through my email address. Uh, do you want it? Do you yeah, want please, to get that? If, if you don't mind. No, no, not at all. Jack underscore Cole underscore five five nine at hotmail dot com. Great, and we'll also put that in the liner notes for this episode. Right. Just be right. ready. You're going to have a flood of emails coming your way because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that now know how they can reach out to the, to the genius. Oh, thank you so much. Listen, I really enjoyed it. Sorry for my lapse of memories. No problem. I guess I, I hope, uh, we hope to see you the next time we're on the West Coast, and certainly if you're in New York anytime soon, let us know. We'd love to have you by the studio. Terrific. I'd love that. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. Take care, Jack. Thank you so much. And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode.